And tonight um, is sort of like a part two. Last week we talked about uh, how the Bible is, does not have scientific errors in it. As a matter of fact, a lot of these alleged errors are so easily explained if you look at, um, for one, look at translations, the ancient manuscripts, what they, the words are and stuff. Um, science sometimes has things where they disagree with the Bible. Um, takes science sometimes a long time to catch up. But tonight we're looking at another part of this, that the Bible is real. And tonight we're doing something that's very dear to my heart, as many of you know, since I've written books on this. Um, it's about history in the Bible, that archaeology, the science, by the way, it's a science, archaeology is, how science of archaeology supports the Bible. And this is a very, very interesting topic to me. Even though I'm a biologist, I have a teaching minor in history, and so I love this kind of stuff. And, of course, I do the Israel trips here uh, that we go on, and we have the next one coming up this October. We'll be going down to Israel. Been a lot of, just in the last few weeks, there's been some really startling and amazing discoveries coming out of Israel. Because uh, right now they're at the height of dig season. This is when all of the archaeologists are busy at their digs digging. Uh, college students are out of most of the schools, and so they can go and they can help dig. And so it's, um, this is the active time of year for all that. And so tonight, what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you some, some tidbits of information, just little, <laughs> just a few, just a very brushing of the topic here to show you that the Bible is actually very historically accurate. And even though archaeologists, there are some archaeologists who do not believe in the Bible, they frequently use the Bible um, in their studies because the Bible is extremely accurate. There was one, or one historian back in the um, early days of archaeology. As a matter of fact, he's considered today the father of biblical archaeology, uh, Sir William Ramsey. Um, he was a professor, Englishman, um, believe he was at Oxford, and he hated Christianity, hated Christians, couldn't stand the Bible, and so he made it his life ambition to go to the Holy Land to disprove the Bible using history. He spoke on it frequently, traveled around speaking against the Bible. So he decided and he proclaimed that with two books, the books of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, both written by the same person, Dr. Luke, with these two books, he says, I will disprove the Bible to the world. And so he went over with these two books to the Holy Land and uh, into present-day Turkey and through Greece and stuff like this and trying to disprove the Bible and what ended up happening is that he found out that Luke was, as he stated, one of the most remarkable historians who's ever lived. And Dr. Ramsey decided also that um, the Bible was true. He becomes a born-again Christian. He is knighted by Queen Victoria. And he totally changed and becomes the person who is now going around telling everybody that the Bible's real. So an interesting story how those kind of things happen. So there is a lot of evidence to this, and I'm just going to touch on a little bit tonight. If you want more information on this, you can always <laughs> buy my books, <laughs> which you can get on Amazon or Books A Million or Barnes & Noble or any of those things, or even in our own canteen today, you can buy them in the canteen. I don't know. Is there a discount if you buy them both? There is a discount. Wow, $5 off. Huh. Wow. Yeah. Buy my books. I have medical bills to pay. So... <laughs> I get royalties for those kinds. But anyway, with that, let's go ahead and, and dive into the past, if you will, 
and find some uh, what's there showing the Bible is true. So let's open in prayer. Father God, we thank you for this absolutely gorgeous day you provided for us. We also thank you for the health. Dear God, that you have given us that we can be here. And we now ask that your Holy Spirit would teach us a promise that you make to us in 1 Corinthians 2. The Holy Spirit will do the teaching. So Lord, take the, the pictures, take the, the stories, the, the words I'm about to say, but let your Spirit, Lord, take these and work upon the hearts and the minds. Lord, I ask that you glorify yourself. Let people to see tonight that your word is true, that it is real. These people really live. These places are true. These events happened just as you said they did. So help us, Lord, add to our faith as we get grounded and rooted in the faith of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, first of all, I should let you know, there has never been a provable archaeological discovery that disproves the Bible. Not one. Archaeology, uh, the science of archaeology, began pretty much in the 1880s. And to this day, there's a lot of archaeology going on in the Holy Lands and stuff. They have yet to ever find a provable discovery that disproves or goes against the Bible. That's remarkable in itself right there, considering we're talking of tens of thousands of discoveries, not five or six or ten, tens of thousands of artifacts and discoveries that support the Bible. So right there, we have to understand that fact. Also to let you know, the science of biblical archaeology is still sort of new. It's only like 150 years old. It's, our, biblical archaeology is about the same age as genetics with Gregor Mendel. Um, about that time frame is when it started. So it's still what we consider a new type of science. But um, there is still so much out there we anticipate that's never been discovered. A conservative uh, percentage of how much has been dug up and discovered is only about um, maybe 10%. So, like, there's 90% of the stuff still there. And when you go to Israel, some of you have gone to Israel with me, and, and maybe you've been there on your own in the past, but when you go, you can see many tells, hills that once had villages and, and cities on them that have never been touched. People have never excavated any of these yet. There's many cities that have never been excavated. Um, it's, it's a newer science. So, we wanted to get into that. Now, what I'm about to do is I'm going to take you through a lot of little pieces here to let you see the accuracy of the Bible. And one of the first things I want to tell you is something that is contrary um, to biblical account is what is taught often in universities today. Many universities will actually teach, and I know because I've talked with professors in secular universities who told me that the Bible didn't even exist in written form until about 450 B.C. When Ezra, the high priest at the end of the exile, when he uh, came back with the, the, um, the Israelites, the, uh, to the Jews, to Jerusalem, he learned in Babylon the alphabet, uh, made a Hebrew alphabet with the help of Daniel. Daniel, they say, started this. And then he brought it back, he organizes the books, and for the first time, according to these historians at many secular universities, the Hebrew people now had a written language. Up to that time, they, they claim in universities many times that there was no written language. The Hebrew people were not a very advanced people. They're a bunch of backwoods farmers. They weren't into technology and stuff. That was the Philistines. The Philistines, very technically advanced. They had art. They had a lot of culture. They had technology. Um, they knew how to forge metals and make iron tools and iron uh, weapons and all sorts of things. They, they were very, very advanced. 
Israelites, they sat around and talked about fertilizer all day long because they're just a bunch of farmers. They were afraid of the water. They didn't like to go out into the Mediterranean. They were scared to death of water, most of them. So they just talked about raising sheep, raising crops, and that was it. So they say, because of this, that they were such backwoods people, they didn't even have a written language. That is totally false. Not long ago, just a few years back, a piece of broken pottery was found. Um, That's the actual one. I took a picture of this one. That's uh, the actual photograph in the uh, Israel Museum. This is a copy of it, of what you're seeing there. Here the writing is a little bit more enhanced than what you see in real life. But you can see it's a broken piece of pottery. Broken pottery today, we think of broken pottery as just garbage. Somebody breaks a flower pot, we throw everything away. But in ancient times, everything was used. They used pottery for everything. When you broke a piece of pottery, you kept the big pieces like this, and you would use these. These are the original Post-it notes. This is what you use. Paper was too expensive. Papyrus and stuff, way too expensive. Animal skins, too expensive. If you're going to write a letter, write a receipt. If you're a store owner, um, you want to send a note to somebody, to some relative or whatever, you took a broken piece of pottery, you'd write on it and send it on its way. Of course, everybody could easily read your mail. Love letters, I bet those were really popular. (laughs) But anyway, this is called an ostracon. When you have broken pottery with writing on it, it's an ostracon. Thousands of ostracons have been found all through Israel. Um, And this one here is really interesting because this one dates back to about 1050 BC. In 1050 BC, somebody, we have no idea who it was, witnessed something and he wrote it, what he was watching, he wrote in Hebrew on on a piece of pottery like this. And he's describing an event. Now, big deal to a lot of people, you know, that, well, there's This is a big deal. For one, it shows that Ezra, Ezra lived lived around 450 B.C. This is 1050 B.C. This is much older. 600 years difference here. And the thing is that Hebrew people did have a written language, and this, this proves this. And not only that, what is being described here is fascinating because it's describing something described in the Bible. Um, This is stating on here, if you were to read it, it it's talking about that the kingdom of Israel no longer has a judge as their leader. They have now installed their first king. Who was the first king of Israel? Saul. This, this, This whole story is described in 1 Samuel. Somebody witnessed this, what's described in 1 Samuel, about King Saul becoming the first king, And some person who was witnessing it wrote it down on a piece of pottery to send it to somebody or whatever, but it has survived antiquity and was discovered a few years ago, um, just not too far from Jerusalem, actually. But that is showing that this is the people had a written language. Also, the Bible has many scrolls. It was written in scroll form. And some of these go back like a long time ago, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Maybe some of you have heard about these. Now, the Dead Sea Scrolls actually pretty much date from about the time of maybe just after Isaiah um, forward. But most of them, most of the Dead Sea Scrolls that have been found, there's probably a lot of them still out there we don't know anything anything about that are in private collections. But these were all written in between the Old and the New Testament, and we have copies of all of the books of the Old Testament, with the exception of Esther. Esther has never been found. And I'm sure many of you have heard stories or heard things about the, the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls are just not the Old Testament books. There's also books of poetry. 
Uh, some of them were ledgers. They were written by a group called the Essenes, we believe, um, that lived down around the Dead Sea area. And they would hide these scrolls for some reason. We're not really sure, but they put them in clay pots and stuff. And many of them, all the books of the Old Testament are there, numerous copies of them. There's five books of the book of Isaiah alone. Um, many copies of the Torah, Ezra and Nehemiah, you have them all. And a lot of other books that have been stored like that. The way they were discovered were in caves, just like you see here. This is at a place called Qumran, where they found a lot of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And this is where the Essenes basically lived and copied their scrolls um, in this area. And this is one of the caves here, right in this area here, where some of these scrolls were found. They were found by accident by some teenagers looking for his lost sheep. Um, sheep can easily walk along the sides of that. I wouldn't try it. Um, but they could walk into these caves easily. And so these two boys back in the latter 1940s were looking for a lost sheep. They threw a, a rock up there and they heard breaking pottery. You got a question? Those holes are easily uh, about four feet high. This is across a valley. This is very, very tight cliff that I'm showing you right here um, with some of these things. This is a very, very deep ravine, very deep. And so these boys climbed up there, found these broken pots that they, one of them threw the stone in there and it hit some pots, broke. They climbed up there and found these scrolls. That's how the Dead Sea Scrolls were first discovered. They have since been finding other caves. There's a lot of caves all through Israel, and they have found many, many other scrolls. And uh, every now and then, you hear about one. Matter of fact, this past winter, there was a scroll that was in a private collection by somebody, I believe, in New York City that had one and put it up onto the, the market to uh, sell to museums and stuff like that. They're priceless. And... <clears throat> They, excuse me, so they're just clay pots, some of these pots, a few feet to a, several feet high like that, and they have a funny lid on them, but they would put scrolls in this. Now, no one knows why all these scrolls are found like that. We, we have never been able to figure it out. There's a lot of theories, you know, like Romans were going around trying to destroy it. We don't know. But we do know that they were hidden in caves all over southern Israel, and it's really remarkable. And they have found all these, and if you take one out, you can actually read in some cases, some, the first ones they found were so broken apart and just fragmented in many sections. But there are some, like the, there's one Isaiah scroll. It was on tour a few years ago here in the United States, went to many different museums. It's 40 feet long. And this is a picture of that. You can easily see the writing still on this. And this predates Christ by a couple hundred years. That's how old they are. And what's fascinating, I have had many people with discussions in the past where people have said, well, Isaiah is a book of prophecy. There's a lot of things in Isaiah that talks about the birth of the Messiah, the death of the Messiah. And they say, the reason this is so accurate is because Isaiah was written after Christ's ministry. And that's why it's so accurate, because it was written after the fact. And I'm like, have you ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? These things have all been dated hundreds of years before Christ. They could not have been written afterwards because the Dead Sea Scrolls were written before that. And they're that accurate. And what I find also fascinating about this, if you take like the book of Isaiah, that 40-foot-long scroll, sit down and if you could get somebody to translate the Hebrew into the English that we have today, set right next to it a New American Standard or an interlinear Bible, as we've talked about before, the interlinear, you will notice it's exactly the same. The only changes you're going to see in it is the spelling of names and places. All of the story, all the theology is exactly the same. Now, that's a remarkable find because that tells us the Bible that they had back in 200 
250, 300 BC is the same books we are reading today. Fascinating find. Um, now, some people will say that, wait a minute, um, that they could have books and stuff like this, but you got to get earlier. You got to get before Ezra to see if there's any books. So Ezra was 450. Well, they have found some scrolls, ancient scrolls of scripture have been found. In 1979, this is a photograph here of Dr. Gabriel Barkey, and everybody just calls him Gabby. Um, Gabby announced the discovery of finding the oldest known copy of Old Testament scripture ever found from the law. And actually, he's not the one who found it. It was a 13-year-old boy named Nathan who was causing all sorts of trouble at the archaeological dig. Um, Gabby was driving, this kid was driving Gabby nuts as sometimes 13-year-olds will do. And so Gabby put him inside of an old tomb. They were excavating old tombs and said, why don't you go down in this hole here and clean it for us? You know, at first the kid thought he had a job, like he was doing something necessary and helpful. But then he started realizing, because he said, well, there's nothing in there. Well, go back in there and check. It might be something really small. He goes back in the hole, comes back out. There's nothing in there. Well, maybe you got to check it a little bit more careful. Uh, you know, he's sitting inside of an old tomb. Um, it was an old tomb from about the time of Hezekiah uh, in the Old Testament, and he's realizing now, I'm being punished. So he comes back out. There's nothing in there. Go back in there. <laughs> and it kept him away from all the equipment from everybody, bothering everybody else. And on his way back in, he took a hammer. Middle school. Kid takes a hammer. He goes inside the uh, tomb, crawls inside this little tiny hole, and as he's in there, he's... Now he's really sort of mad and everything because he knows he's being punished and he starts, as a middle schooler would do, and starts just banging the floor with the hammer. And what they thought that they had taken everything out of this tomb, um, there was a surprise that happened. As the kids started banging the thing, all of a sudden the floor gave way. It was an artificial floor. And it's like Indiana Jones in, in the first movie, um, how he fall, you know, they fall through a thing and, or, or through a wall or something like that, and there's dead, bone, or dead bodies, bones everywhere. That's what happened. The kid fell into a tomb and um, <laughs> scared, <laughs> scared the bejeebers out of him when the dust settled. It was a tomb like this one. This is actually a, a makeshift model of the tomb that had a false floor, and he falls through and lands in this thing, and he finds, you know, there's all sorts of artifacts and stuff in there. And actually, it was one of the greatest discoveries of the 20th century um, that they found amongst all the bones and everything, they found two tiny little scrolls. The boy actually thought they were like little cigarette butts, ancient cigarette butts. Like, wow, man, they've been smoking back then too, you know? Maybe they're camels. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that died. <laughs> Unrolling the scrolls, they were made of silver. And it was silver that was beaten out so flat it was like aluminum foil, but they were inscribed with a sharp instrument. And you can see writing on them when they studied these, and they found out it actually has scripture written on each one. And it's the scripture passage on both was Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. And it's the priestly prayer that I'll show you what it says in just a second, what was recorded on these little silver scrolls dating back to the 7th century. This is way before Ezra. So here's Holy Scripture on small little scrolls, and this is what it says. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. I'm sure you've all recognized this passage. And it was found in these little scrolls. So when people try and tell you that all the Holy Scriptures were done by oral tradition for centuries until you get to Ezra, that's not true. 
Here's evidence right here. Scrolls were written down. Also, it says in the Bible, throughout the Torah even, God tells Moses, write this down. He doesn't say, memorize this to carry on. Write it down. And so it was written down. Scripture was written down. Um, in talking about New Testament, that's all with the Old Testament. The New Testament, we actually have copies of, of uh, the New Testament also. As a matter of fact, fragments and copies of the New Testament, there's actually just shy of 25,000 fragments and copies of the New Testament existing today that have been found from antiquity. That's a lot. When you consider the, uh, the second most numerous copy of a book is Homer's Iliad, and there's only 643 ancient copies of that, where you have tw almost 25,000 ancient copies of the New Testament, that's remarkable. And having that many, you can compare all of these, which scholars have done, comparing all of them to see how accurate. Is this one saying the same thing as this? Is this one saying the same as this? Is this one saying the exact same thing as this? Because if it's the Word of God, it's got to be perfect. So they can check all of these things. In the Homer's Iliad, um, the 643 copies, there's 5% change that you see between the 643 copies. 5%. Scholars have taken the copies of the New Testament that they have, they've looked at them all, and they have found that it's less, less than one-half of a percent of change. And the only changes you see are the spelling of names and places. All the theology is exactly the same. But one thing that was found, the oldest piece of a New Testament that we have, is called the P52 manuscript. There's a picture of it up here on the screen right now, and I'm holding a copy of it, a museum copy. This is not the original. I wish I had the original. I wouldn't have any financial problems the rest of my life. But this is um, a Christmas present my wife bought me, and it is a piece of parchment. This is actually on papyrus. It's a codex. It's a book. This is not a scroll. It was a book. New Testaments were written on parchments. Paul even says at one point, please bring the parchments when he um, is in prison. So um, they had these things, and this one here is um, called the P52. It's a fragment of the Gospel of John. And specifically, it's on one side, John 18, 31, and you turn it over, the reverse size is 37 through 38. Same verse, same chapter. Um, so we see this on both sides. It's a book. But it's remarkable, because if you sit and you study the Greek on this, because it's written in Greek, New Testament was, as you study this Greek here, you will notice, look again at an interlinear Bible, New American Standard, or something like that, you will see it's exactly what we're reading today. It's that accurate. Now, when was this written? By studying, because it's papyrus, plant material, you can carbon date this. Also, studying the uh, type of the, the lettering on the Greek, you can get a very clear idea of when this was written. Most scholars can uh, put this around 100 to 150, or, yeah, 150 A.D. John, the, uh, the, the apostle John, we believe, lived to 120 A.D. Thus... This parchment very likely was written when John was alive. Now, I'm not saying John wrote this one. I mean, it's possible he could have, but we know that they made many copies of these New Testament books. But this one, this parchment that exists here, this dates back to the time when John was still alive. That's a remarkable find. Also, talking about 
Old Testaments and, and copies of the, uh, of the books the, um, of the Old Testament and the New Testament and things like this. While Old Testament in particular were copied many times and each synagogue throughout the world, wherever there were Jews, a small population of Jews, there had to be a synagogue. And in the synagogue was also where they had school, where people would learn and stuff. And like it says in the, the Gospels, Jesus would go um, into the synagogues, like once he goes into Nazareth, his hometown, goes there, he goes to the synagogue, and they take out a scroll, and he unrolls it, and he reads it, and it's out of the book of Isaiah. He reads it, and it's a prophecy about the Messiah. And then he takes the scroll, hands it back, and he stands at this platform, and he says, you guys are so blessed today because this just happened. This just came true. Of course, they all tried to throw him off the cliff there in Nazareth uh, because they realized he was claiming to be the Messiah, and they knew him as you know, just the carpenter's son. But these uh, synagogues had to have copies of these books, the Old Testament books in there, for them to be able to learn and to read for services and stuff. Now, um, one of these was found just recently in 1970, down by the Dead Sea, and I did take my group that was there last year, we went to see this, uh, matter of fact, that's me standing in court. Of course I was there. Um, hi. <laughs> but this is down by the Dead Sea. It's very just desert. But Israel is such an agriculturally advanced nation today. They're learning, and they've got an irrigation system called, they invented drip irrigation. They're now growing crops and stuff in the middle of the desert. And so they were getting ready to put in a whole pile of date trees in this area, so they start digging down in the sand to place pipes and, and stuff into the sand for this irrigation system. As they were digging down, they started hitting uh, a mosaic floor. This is an ancient mosaic floor, little tiny particles all laid out. Um, there's names that are mentioned on the sides of this thing, uh, biblical names. It has some of the names from the book of Daniel. It's got the names of the patriarchs are written along the side in the stones, and you've got beautiful designs here and stuff like this. Um, this synagogue, we had absolutely no knowledge of, and still have very little knowledge of anything about this thing. It was a synagogue. Style of the synagogue shows it's around the New Testament time, just after, um, and uh, it has doorways over here. And they found inside of here some Torah scrolls, scrolls of the first five books of the Bible. All synagogues had to have these. And they found these in a Torah cabinet, which is what I'm pointing at over in this area here. It's labeled on this photograph as number eight. This is a cabinet that was built in here where they stored the, the scrolls. And so as they started digging this thing out in 1970, they found some scrolls in there. Now, we know that this was all burned. There was just burn ashes and all sorts of things everywhere. Anything wood, it was just in ash. But as they did this, they got into the Torah scroll cabinet. They found something amazing. They found this. This is the actual photograph of the thing that they pulled out of there, there in the sand and stuff. Now, to most people, this looks like a burnt piece of wood out of the fireplace. But that's not what it is. This is actually a scroll that has been burned. They found this, they treated it very carefully, putting it in a box with a lot of cotton, and they had no way of unrolling it in 1970 to study this. They had no idea what it was. They realized it was a scroll because it was in the Torah cabinet. A scroll of what? No one knew. So they just sort of, very wisely, these archaeologists stored it, waiting for decades for the technology to become available to open it up and be able to read it, which now just... Uh, in the last five years, that has happened. And they unrolled the thing. This is also, I put a, there's a photograph here with a penny showing you how small this thing is, the parts that have remained. But you can see there's writing on this scroll, 
and now they have been able to unroll this thing and actually photograph and read it. It is the book of Leviticus in the Torah. And what is fascinating about this, this scroll, it has word for word basically the same thing. It is word for word what we have in like the interlinear Bible. So much so, it is so accurate that even the paragraph breaks are in the same spot. It is that accurate. Do you know what this tells us? They dated this around 200, maybe 300 uh, A.D. So this is like the early church fathers at that time period. But you know what this tells us? The book of Leviticus we read in our Bibles today is the same dating back into antiquity. Don't let anybody tell you the, um, the Bible's been influenced and changed and stuff like this. Muslims often cite this. They, they say the, um, the Bible, which is an important book for them to read, but they say you can't believe everything in it because Christians changed it and stuff like this. Really? Explain the Dead Sea Scrolls, which show our Old Testament is extremely accurate. And even this Torah scroll here, here's another one. <sighs> they don't have a foot really to stand on in this. The Bible is extremely accurate as we go through it. So the Engedi Scroll, this is right out of a, a copy here from Apologetics Press. They stated this, the Engedi Scroll, as it's called, even duplicates the exact paragraph breaks that you see in the text that we have later on that most of the time is being used to make our Bibles. This is a remarkable find. And just five years ago, last, last year, in fact, the Smithsonian Magazine had a big article all about this discovery and how um, they were able to take it apart and read it. And that was just last summer that came out in the Smithsonian Magazine. Now, some other things I'm going to show you, just showing you some places and things that these people really did exist. This is Herod the Great's sarcophagus. Yes, the same Herod the Great who tried to put Christ to death, murdered the infants in Bethlehem, etc., etc. Really mean, idiotic, insane, half-the-time man. They, they found his tomb. We know from ancient writings his tomb was in a man-made mountain that he made with a palace on top called Herodium. And just a few years ago, as they were digging, um, they've been searching for years, for decades, trying to find his tomb, and they found it. Um, and even has the sarcophagus. This is where his body was laid. But we know from ancient writings, too, from that time period of Christ, that the grave was robbed because he was buried with, he had a lot of wealth, he was buried with wealth, um, and his body, he, he was so hated by many people, not just Jews, um, that they desecrated the body and took out the body. So there was nothing in this when it was discovered. Uh, grave robbers had already got to it. That's part of the problem you have, even in Egyptology. Um, grave robbers. But this is actually Herod the Great sarcophagus. The guy actually lived, or why would we have a sarcophagus? Speaking of like bone boxes and stuff, this is the Caiaphas ossuary. Caiaphas was the high priest who put Jesus to death. He went to the Romans, let's kill this guy, you know, put him to, um, let's crucify him and stuff like this. Well, in, in around 1991, they were digging a new water park on the south side of the modern city of Jerusalem. And as they were digging along, they exposed an ancient family tomb. Uh, it was just a hole in the ground, like a cave. And they suspended the construction of the water park. They went down to look around, and they found this ossuary, among 11 other ones. But they saw this beautifully carved alabaster box. It's about uh, two feet long, about a foot and a half high, and about a foot wide. And it's stone. You can see it's elaborately decorated, beautiful decoration. And they did find this tomb had not been robbed. Uh, this sarcophagus, this bone box, it was still intact, and his body was still inside of it. Uh, the bones, his bones were still in there, as was his wife, uh, a teenage son. Um, I believe there were two toddlers, and um, or no, a toddler and two infants. 
that he had in his family. Back in those days in the first century, you buried your family basically in a bone box called an ossuary, and you would put their bones after the bones have decayed and stuff inside the tomb. You open up the tomb, then you come back and you take the bones and put it in a box. I know it sounds really gruesome. We wouldn't think of going, digging somebody up, taking the coffin, opening it up, taking the bones out and doing this, but that's what was done in ancient Israel. And then the tomb, the burial bench that they would put the body on can be used again because you take the body off and you put all the bones inside of the thing like that. So that's how it was done. But yes, this was discovered. Um, David, people know that David now lived. He wasn't a mythical person. Many times in universities, they would teach that David never existed. Yes, we do know he existed. Um, this was the first find. This was around 1993. They were digging up in the northern part of Israel, a place called Tel Dan, and they found a monument that had been broken up and reused to rebuild a wall. Archaeologists digging through this wall. They see writing on this stone sticking in the wall. They pull this out. This is the actual stone I photographed here. And you'll notice a highlighted section down here. This little highlighted section actually states this. It says, uh, the house of David, David, king. And it talks about him being the king of Israel. Not and what it's describing is a battle between David's descendants and the Syrians, is what this is talking about. But it's actually mentioning David as the king, the house, his descendants being kings of Israel, just like what the Bible describes. Since then, there's been other discoveries. Kenneth Kitchen made one, uh, I believe it was in 1994, in the Temple of Karnak in Egypt, showing um, Pharaoh Shishak, who conquered Rehoboam, David's grandson, and he wrote that he conquered uh, David's grandson, and he wrote it on the wall. Back in those days in Egypt, you wrote everything on the wall, the history and everything. Not just like in bathrooms today, you put phone numbers on it. Back then, you would write the history of what you're doing, and they would write it on the walls, and it's still there today. Also in Moab, uh, what is today present Jordan, uh, they found another monument, and it actually has David's name on it also. So David's name has popped up a couple of times. This guy really did live. And not only that, they have now been excavating for the last, oh, since about 2012, they've been excavating David's palace just south of the Temple Mount. And um, Dr. Mazar, who is doing this, uh, this dig here, is still working through this area and digging it out. But you can go now and visit and see down. The, they have a, you can see from above, looking through glass plates, you can see into David's uh, area where he, his, his throne was. And that's been found also. David really was a real person. This is not a mythical person. Matter of fact, they found David's tomb in 2012. They identified this. I know it looks like a, a ditch with a culvert or something like that. This was underground. What you're seeing here was totally underground until about 130 AD when the Romans decided to rebuild Jerusalem into a new city, a Roman city called Elia Capitolina. And up on the Temple Mount, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. But in 132 AD, the Romans decided to build a new temple to Jupiter up on the exact same place on the Temple Mount, where Solomon's temple stood, then Zerubbabel's temple at the time of Ezra, then Herod built the second great temple, um, which was the temple that Christ was in and teaching in. It was destroyed, and then the next temple built up there was one to Jupiter. And since then, there's never been a temple up there. That was destroyed later also. Um, but as they were rebuilding this temple and stuff, they needed to get cut stone. So they went down to the Valley of the Kings, the royal burial ground at Solid Rock. They started cutting these, um, the ground up in, in large sections to build this building. And they cut in and they found David's tomb. And this has a, this groove here. There's a, uh, a similar groove on the other side of this photograph. And this was a false floor. David was buried with a lot of treasure, according to ancient Jewish writings. 
We do know in the book of Acts, when, at Pentecost, when Peter stands up to address the crowd at Pentecost, he actually mentions David's tomb. David's tomb, he says, is here in Jerusalem. We know where it's at, and David's body is still in there. So that was quite a testimony you see in the book of Acts. Um, so later on, the Romans come about 100 years later, and they desecrate all of this area. And we have no idea where David's body is. The Romans had no respect for it or whatever. Um, this is a little piece of broken pottery again. You can notice there's some writing on here. This is Philistine writing. This was discovered just a few years ago, I think in 2005. Um, a, a archaeological dig was going on in the city of Gath, which is in the Gaza Strip, um, the land of the Philistines. And as they were digging, they found a water cask, a big water jug, clay water jug that had been smashed and broken. And as they were looking through it, they found on uh, some of the pieces were still there um, that they could see. And this one has a name written on it. And it actually has the name Goliath. And if you read the story of David and Goliath, where did Goliath live? Gath. And dating the style of the writing, the type of the pottery and stuff like this, uh, it comes out to be around 1050 BC, which is when Goliath, according to the Bible, would have been living. So whether this is the Goliath of the Bible, we have no idea. But this does prove that in the city of Gath, there was a guy named Goliath living there, just as the Bible said. So the guy who found it does not believe in the Bible. He thinks that Goliath is just a common name like Smith or Jones is in the United States. And he just says, this just shows that Goliath was a popular name. It's not the biblical person. Of course, he really can't say that either. We don't know. It's the only name Goliath ever been found. But anyway, other things that have been found... Ahab's ring, King Ahab, it actually has his name right on here, and Jezebel's little bulla, this is a piece of an opal, was wore with a screw mount here, probably on a necklace that she wore, cute little opal, and it has their signets on it. Now, these, these type of things, like a bulla and stuff, are for sealing documents. You would make a document, write something out, you would put a blab of plaster, wax wasn't used yet, then you would take the little bulla and stamp it, and it would make the stamp seal on there. There's no question about this, this is... Um, Ahab's and that this is Jezebel's. Uh, Jezebel, it tells us in the Bible, she was Phoenician. She was the daughter of a king. She's a princess. This symbol here of this winged lion, this is actually a symbol, a Phoenician symbol, meaning royalty, a princess. There's also a lotus flower down here, meaning again, it's a female. It has this, uh, this thing here going through the center is a winged beetle. That is the royal seal of the Jews. So this is a person who's Phoenician, yet is a ruler in Jews, of the Jews and stuff, or I shouldn't say Jews, the Israelites. Then there's two cobras, and like in Egypt, the cobras is a symbol of authority, royalty. And so this is all here. But the thing that really makes this, her name is actually inscribed on here. The name Jezebel is appearing, the four letters making up Jezebel. Ancient Israel, or ancient Hebrew, does not have vowels. It's just a language of consonants. But it has Jezebel right on here. Nobody really doubts this. That that's what they found. And there's been other ones that have been found too. This is a theater. If you read Acts 12, you come across a fascinating story about how Herod Agrippa I, after arresting Peter and having James executed, he had James the apostle, uh, um, John's brother executed, and then he was going to have uh, Peter executed. He puts him in prison. God actually spares him. You know the whole story. Peter walks out of the prison miraculously. But what you don't get from the Bible, but you get from historians writing about this. Herod Agrippa I had Peter arrested, but then he got called by the Roman governor to go up to Caesarea to settle a dispute. So he gave the instructions to the people in the jail, keep Peter in here, um, and I'll deal with him when I get back. 
And so he goes up to Caesarea and to settle this uh, dispute that's going on. And then it tells us in Acts 12 that he wore a special robe. The robe was made, according to Josephus, out of little silver mirrors, mirrors of pure silver, thousands of them, and he walked out onto the stage here and made a speech. Uh, We're facing the east, and so as the sun came up over this in the morning, it hit his mirrored outfit and it blinded everybody, and they started shouting. This is in the Bible. They were saying, this is the voice of a God, and God struck him because he accepted the praise of the people. That whole story takes place right on that stage. More bullas of different people, King Jotham, King Ahaz, King Hezekiah, King Manasseh. Their names are right on here. The most famous one of these is the one that's Hezekiah because they have found so many of his. It says right on here, Judah. um, And on the side here in Hebrew, you can see the winged beetle, so a royalty. But it says, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king. And so this is his. There's no question about it. As a matter of fact, just this past year, they made another startling discovery. They found another one of Hezekiah's right here, the winged beetle again. Um, and it says, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king, Judea, or Judea, right here. But then they made this one. Maybe you saw this. This was very popular for a, about a half a day. <laughs> Biblical things are like that in the secular news. But this one over here is another bola that was found uh, by Dr. Mazar just south of the temple, uh, on the temple mount, but on the south side of it. And they found this one of Hezekiah and this one of Isaiah, the prophet. And it says on here what we have is like belonging to Isaiah, the prophet, is what is inscribed here. These were found only about 10 feet apart in the same layer. And in the Bible, Hezekiah and Isaiah are contemporaries. They lived together. They, were, they knew each other. They talked. And there's many accounts of them talking in the Bible together. Remarkable find. First one of a major prophet like that fascinating things. There's Hezekiah's water tunnel, something that's described in 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 20, one of the most popular tourist attractions in Israel today. You go to Jerusalem, you can walk through this ancient underwater tunnel system that Hezekiah had made to bring water into the city. You can still walk it. Um, it's icy cold water. It's very dark. There's no lights. It's a quarter of a mile long. In most places, it's so narrow, you have to walk sideways. And It still has fresh, clean water running through it today. Uzziah's tomb, another king, another person in the Bible. He was the one who was a good king, but he did an illegal sacrifice. He got so full of pride, he thought, well, I'll just walk into the temple and make a sacrifice at the altar of incense for God because I'm so close to God. Well, that's not the way you worship God. God has his ways of doing things, and we can't change it to match our ways. We have to do the things the way God wants it. And so God struck him with leprosy, and they buried him. And this was a plaque that was placed outside of his tomb saying that he is in there, his body is in there, and not to open it because he was unclean. Why would he be unclean? He was a leper. All this goes on and on. How many more things I could show you? Peter's house at Capernaum. You can go there. Um, This is a church on top. Peter's house. Yes, the Apostle Peter. Nobody disputes this. This is Peter's house in Capernaum. Um, There's a synagogue right across the street. There's a funny-looking guy in the middle. And this is a synagogue right in the same spot where Jesus taught. This is a newer synagogue because the old one was destroyed by the Romans, but they rebuilt it and um, standing right in the same spot where Jesus would have been teaching. Um, Caiaphas's house, where Peter denied Christ, a remarkable place. I love to take people here. It's my most precious place. And when I go on an Israel trip, is to stand in this corner because this is where Peter was standing when he denied Christ. It tells us so in Mark 15, 66 through 72, that the courtyard, this would have been outdoors. There was a fire here. He gets identified and it says he goes and stands at the entrance. Here's the entrance. He stands here and he can see Jesus in the room next door and he denies him. 
you can stand on the exact spot. Oh, how many things we could go through? Solomon find, uh, building stables in Megiddo mentions that in 1 Kings chapter 19. That he, put so many st- he had so many horses and chariots. You go to Megiddo today, there are stables all over this place. All over. The, this one here is showing, it says the northern stables. There's also a southern stables. It's even bigger. He had, it, it's exactly as the Bible said, describing all of these things. This is an altar where King Jeroboam built an all, uh, a golden calf for the people to worship. First Kings 25, 28, and 29. It's there. The golden calf is gone. It's probably wearing, being worn on people's ears or on their fingers. Uh, gold doesn't disappear. It just gets remelted down and stuff. Sennacherib's defeat at Jerusalem in 2 Kings 18 and 19 against King Hezekiah is described on Sennacherib's prism. Joshua conquering Hatzor, and then he burns it. Um, all of these things go on and on and on, and I don't have time to go through all these because we're already out of time tonight. But just showing you, I'm going to skip down here down just to get the end because there are so many funny things here. I want to give you these questions to let you guys have something to discuss as we're done here. But my point tonight is to try and show you these people actually lived. These events actually happened. Hatsor, that last place, it says in the Bible he burned it. There is evidence everywhere of it being burned. There's an ash layer everywhere. That also that they destroyed the idols. Idols being having their heads and their feet and hands cut off of all different nations. Um, Jericho was totally burned. It was not sacked. It says in the Bible to burn everything in the city. They didn't collect the food. They burned it. That was discovered. Every single detail of these biblical stories that can exist in history has been passed down and it's there. That's why I take people to Israel, to let them see the Bible is real. It's real. No other religious book has this type of evidence. None have this type of evidence. This is so unique to the Bible. Let's close in prayer, and I'll let you guys get in your small groups. There's so much more I wish I could tell you, but we could go on for hours on this one. I'd keep talking to my tongue, my tongue would swell and I would die. But you can buy my books, but let's pray. <laughs> Father God, we thank you for this opportunity. And I just pray that your spirit will take these facts and let people see this is all true. Your word is true. You are a God of truth. There is no falsehood to you. And if you gave us your word, as you say you did, and you can't lie, these things happened. We can put our faith in the Word of God. Ancient scrolls and stuff has showed us that it is still extremely accurate. It's the same thing. It has not been altered. It has not been changed. We can put our faith and trust that we are reading the Holy Word of God. You have protected your Word throughout and from the days of antiquity for thousands of years. You've preserved it. You even promised that your word would always last forever and ever. And we thank you for that. Please add to their faith and keep them safe. Bless our treats also tonight, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.